Well, good morning, Fourth Avenue. My name is J.P. Conway, and I feel blessed to be with you this morning. I bring you greetings from the Ackland Avenue Church of Christ in South Nashville, kind of the 12 South Edge Hill neighborhood where I've preached the last 12 and a half years. It's good to be with you. I've got my wife and one of my children here. The other two weren't feeling as good. But as I look around, I see a lot of familiar faces, and uh, it's good to be with you. I've respected this church for a long time and really jumped at the chance when Kyle asked me to come preach this morning. But I blame him for many things. And I will begin that list now. So it was last October, we were having lunch at Edley's Barbecue, and he said, I'd love for you to come preach for me sometime, maybe like February. And I said, Kyle, I would love to come preach. And then he told me. It was a series on Revelation. (laughs) And then he kind of did this passing... But if that's too hard, which is kind of like preacher smack talk for, if you can't hang with that text, right? And then it got worse. For he gave me Revelation chapter 9, which is right in the midst of tribulation. and It's not even the good part of Revelation. It's not even one of the seven churches or the end where it gets fun, right? It's the bad part. And so, my disclaimer this morning, most of you I have never met, and yet we're going to talk about plagues and pain and suffering and a topic you should really only get into with people you know really well. So, it'd be really easy to take me out of context this morning. There's a lot of nuance in what I'm saying. So, the theme of this morning is simply blame Kyle. In 2010, Nashville had a flood. Those of you that lived here remember it, right? And uh, there was 13 inches of rain in about a 36-hour period. And many of us, even if we weren't completely flooded like parts of downtown or Bellevue or areas near the Harpeth, we still had just so much water just coming up out of the ground. And everybody kind of had a flooded crawl space and everything. But one one of the phrases I kept hearing is people said, This isn't just a flood. This is a flood of biblical proportions. And then when they would add that word biblical, it was like, no, this is like super, super big. As if we think of it in the context of a plague. And it's not just a normal happenstance. I remember, I think it was my junior year of college, I went to Abilene Christian out in West Texas. My wife and I were talking about this store on the way in this morning because she was a freshman. But there was just, suddenly it felt like a plague. There were just crickets everywhere. Just everywhere. And I'd never seen it. It was my third year of school there. I'd never seen it. It was her freshman year. She was talking about how close she was to just getting in the car and just going right back home. Because you would open a door and you would just push piles of crickets when you'd open the door to your dorm and like they were in your room and they were in the cafeteria and they were in the stairwell. And just like we read in Exodus, it smells when you get thousands of dead bugs in a pile. And so this morning, we're gonna talk about plagues. And we're gonna talk about specifically locusts and what it means to discern the locusts in our lives. Our text this morning comes from Revelation chapter 9, 
20 through 21, Revelation chapter 9, 20 through 21, which says, the rest of mankind were not killed by these plagues, still did not repent of the work of their hands. They did not stop worshiping demons and idols of gold, silver, bronze, stone, and wood, idols that cannot see or hear or walk, nor did they repent of their murders, their magic arts, their sexual immorality, or their thefts. So what's going on here at the latter part of Revelation chapter 9? The backdrop here, we're in the midst of great tribulation. We're in the midst of great plagues. This is judgment on the Roman Empire and those that are around the Roman Empire. Kyle has been preaching through the lens of an amillennial interpretation and a post-tribulation interpretation, simply meaning he's interpreting the thousand-year reign as a metaphor, figurative, and he's interpreting... Uh, the rapture and the second coming is kind of one and the same. I'm going fast and loose with some of those phraseology, but that's what's going on, meaning he's saying the church is present when these things happen. The good guys and the bad guys are all present when the plagues start to happen, and maybe the plagues are coming on the Christians too, or maybe it's like in Egypt in the land of Goshen where the plagues aren't going, but bad, bad things are happening on the earth is people are being judged, and the plagues are coming to bring people to an idea of repentance, to bring people to this notion of, we've got to change, we've got to do something different. And so right off the bat, we need to confront something. The modern interpreter of these passages is often very uncomfortable with God of judgment, because the God of Revelation chapter 9 is angry. And uh, we live in a world of pendulum swings, and we see these pendulum swings. I'm old enough to remember when God was angry. <laughs> I'm old enough to remember from sermons of my childhood that thought, felt like Jonathan Edwards had come back and was preaching sinners in the hands of an angry God. And I can see some of you out here. You remember hellfire and brimstone, specifically in our tradition. And then we swung to grace, big fan of grace, by the way, and it was awesome to be a teenager when grace became cool again. Those were key years, key years for me, for my parents to suddenly be interested in grace. Um, but we swung, and then judgment became uncomfortable. And so I remember the summer of 2020, when we were wrestling with the pandemic and all the closures and people were arguing and our political system was dysfunctional and we were exploring and talking about racism and the evils of racism. And like many, most of you, I was low, I was depressed, I was sad, and then it hit me. Here's the silver lining. We've decided as a culture, once again, that it's okay to be angry and it's okay for God to be angry. We have decided that some things are worthy of judgment. And I found that really refreshing. Let me put it this way. If you ever watch the news and you get angry, be encouraged. God is angry too. And God's anger is just. God's anger is also compassionate. But God is a God of judgment. And God judges because God is love. Sometimes we can start to think, 
God is love, and then when God forgets that he's supposed to be loving, he gets angry. No, no, no. That's how humans are. <laughs> That's how I am in my anger. And my anger is not just, and my anger is often not righteous. But think about when we're talking about plagues, and we could ask any kid in this audience, plagues, what part of the Bible you go to, and they would say Exodus. And let me just ask you this question. When God sent the 10 plagues, was God angry? Absolutely. Because 400 years of slavery should make you angry. And God sent the plagues because of God's wrath. And God's wrath was good and righteous because God loved his people. And he did not express judgment because he forgot to be nice that day. He expressed judgment because he's a good and gracious God. Think of it this way. Think of a parent with small children and you're playing in the front yard or you're out in front of the church here and we're here on the streets. And uh, your kids, right, they just gravitate towards playing in the street. I remember when my kids were young, we'd be in the backyard then they'd gravitate to the front and then suddenly they want to run into the street. I don't know what it is. Because it's forbidden, they want to do it. Okay, and I would say, hon, you can't run in the street. It's dangerous. And they just kept wanting to go there. And so when they would finally break away from my, my, my loose and they start running towards the street, I would run and I would yank them up with one arm before they ran into the street. And when neighbors saw me do this, I never once had a neighbor say, what a bigoted father what a hateful person. Kids. Kids are crazy. Kids are wild. Hang in there. Old timers would walk by. It gets better, you know? It gets better. But because I loved my children, I judged that running in the street was bad for them. And they disagreed with my judgment at times. I did not care. Because I was the parent, and I said, running in the street is not good for you. And that was a good and righteous judgment. And so God comes and says, slavery is wrong. And I will judge it because it's evil. He does this because he loves his people. Not because he hates anybody, because he loves. The more we see judgment as a subset of love, instead of its antithesis, the more biblical we will be and the more healthy we will be. Jesus himself talks a lot about judgments. It's often quoted to us, Sermon on the Mount. Judge not lest you be judged. The same measure you judge others, that will be judged to you. What Jesus is saying there is not, hey, it's mean and evil to make judgments. What Jesus is saying is here, make fair judgments. Don't be hypocritical about your judgments, because in the Gospel of John, Jesus is very blunt with his disciples, and he says, Make wise judgments. Make fair judgments. And God sends plagues in Exodus, in Revelation, what we're going to see in a few moments in Joel. It's not because God forgot to be loving. It's because God is loving that God sent these plagues. Specifically, the plague of Revelation 9 is a plague of locusts. This is Revelation 9 three through six, earlier in the chapter, Revelation 9, three through six. And these are some crazy locusts, just be prepared. 
And out of the smoke, locusts came down on the earth and were given power like that of scorpions of the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any plant or tree, but only those people who did not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were not allowed to kill them, but only to torture them for five months. And the agony they suffered was like that of the sting of a scorpion when it strikes. During those days, people will seek death, but will not find it. They will long to die, but death will elude them. A plague of locusts. Locusts are incredibly destructive. There was a locust plague in the late 19th century that led to a famine. 200,000 people died in northern Africa. I was Googling locusts just the other day, and there were agricultural experts tracking the growth of locusts in different parts of sub-Saharan Africa. There are places that just as we track the weather, track locusts. Because locusts are destructive, and when locusts get going, ruins the harvest, people die. And so when they heard this judgment coming of locusts, it woke them up. Once again, why were they being judged? Well, they're being judged because of the evil things we see at the end of chapter 9 that they're refusing to repent of. Worshipping false idols, worshipping demons, magic arts, murder, sexual immorality, and being the Roman Empire at large, the persecution of Christians. It's not the first time in the scriptures, though, we hear of locusts. And so I want to chase this locust theme just a moment for us, because locusts come up very big in the book of Joel, not a book we do a lot with, but I'm convinced that as they're reading Revelation and they're hearing about plagues and they're hearing about locusts, they're doing a double click and they're thinking, where have we heard this before? And Exodus plagues are coming back and the locusts of the book of Joel are coming back. So we have this passage from the book of Joel, Joel chapter 1, 2 verses 4, where we find this. Hear this, you elders. Listen, all who live in the land. Has anything like this ever happened in your days or in the days of your ancestors? Tell it to your children and let your children tell it to their children and their children to the next generation. What the locust swarm has left, the great locusts have eaten. And what the great locusts have left, the young locusts have eaten. What the young locusts have left, other locusts have eaten. And what's going on here and it's very hard for us to date the book of Joel. We don't know if this is pre-exile or post-exile. We don't completely know the context, but we know this. God has allowed locusts to come to bring judgment on the people because of their wickedness. That's the main thing Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, other prophets have been talking about. If you fail to return to Yahweh, you will be judged. And we don't even know if these locusts are literal or metaphorical. Some people believe these locusts were literal locusts like we see in the eighth plague in Exodus and it was ruining the harvest. Other people say, no, this is like a conquering army and there were so many of them. They were like locusts. They were everywhere, like we couldn't get rid of them. So Joel may be using locusts, literally he may be using it as a metaphor, but I just want us for a few minutes this morning to think about the figurative locusts in our life. And I want locusts to be a catch-all phrase for the pain and suffering that we have in our life. Just be as blunt as I can. When we experience plagues, is God judging us or is something else going on? What's happening when we experience 
various forms of plagues. And I want to give you kind of my thesis on this. And wise mentors taught me this when I was young. It is not my job to interpret someone else's pain. It is not your job to interpret someone else's pain. I get to interpret my pain, and you get to interpret your pain. So this morning, I'm going to share some different stories of pain and suffering in my life, and I'm going to share with you how I interpret it. You may agree with the interpretation. You may not, but it's my pain. I get to do it. (laughs) And uh, out of respect, I won't try to interpret your pain. When we're sitting with someone in pain, our job is not to interpret, but I had a mentor tell me, she said, our job is not to interpret. Our job is to remind And I said, well, what's it our job to remind of? Our job is to remind them that God is God of love and God is God of mercy and that they are not alone. And we're in the midst of other people's pain and suffering to just remind them of God's existence. In the Joel passage, what we have here, and it's also in the Revelation passage, that their pain and suffering was a type of judgment on them because of their sin. And I want to tell a couple stories of pain and suffering that I believe is judgment. And then we talk about a different category of pain and suffering and then what it means to discern that. So I'll put it this way. Um, When I was 22 years old, I was the most arrogant I've ever been in my life. Which, it's hard to figure that out because I've been arrogant many times in my life. But when I was 22, I was the most arrogant I've ever been. When I graduated college, I had several different jobs lined up, and they all fell through in very mysterious ways right as I was graduating. And so suddenly I had no plan and ended up back at home in the bedroom where I had grown up in with absolutely zero plan of what to do with my life. And I spent the summer waiting tables at an O'Charlie's. I like good Charlie's, great caramel pie, but it, it wasn't what I had planned. And all summer, and once again, working at Charlie's, it's not cancer, right? But it was not what I had expected for that summer. And all summer long, I thought, why am I going through this? Why did those jobs fall through? Like, like what is going on? And through experience after experience and talking with trusted mentors, I finally had to confront I'm in a place of great arrogance right now. And God is doing a work on me because of my pride and arrogance. And God is humbling me. And I'm not going to get, I was looking for a ministry job, by the way. I'm not going to get a ministry position until I have more humility. And as I waited tables and took people roles all summer, God was doing a work on my heart. Now, If someone had come up to me and said, hey, I think you're being judged right now, I'd be like, I don't know about that. But like, that's how I was interpreting through my prayer time and my silence, like God was doing that work on me. And as years go by, I'm more and more convinced of it every year that God was doing something to me that summer, something that needed pruning, something that needed discern. God was doing a work on me and I deserved it because of my sin. Let me tell you another story. And this is a friend of mine. His name's Saul. He was, I was a youth minister for years. He was in my youth ministry. This was up in the New England area. And our favorite thing to do 
was to go to Dunkin' Donuts, because it's New England, and there's a Dunkin' Donuts on every corner. And, uh, and we would often go to Dunkin' Donuts and just hang out. It was kind of like our thing, our stick. Years go by, and Saul ends up in prison. And he's guilty. What he did was wrong. And we write letters back and forth. We actually talked on the phone about two weeks ago. He has a 25-year sentence, and he's halfway through. He's about 12 and a half years through his 25-year sentence. Now, I want to be really careful when I use this story, because I'm not trying to baptize everything about the criminal justice system by any means. I'm not trying to make a big commentary on that. I'm just telling you what he told me. He said, JP, I got mixed up in some really bad things, and God took me out of society so I wouldn't hurt more people. And God judged me. And I had a lot of things I had to wrestle with. Now, once again, he's interpreting his own pain and suffering. But he said, God needed to do this because I was hurting people. And God took me out of society so that I could do the hard work of repentance. Right? But not every situation is that way. And if you can think just for a second, we're talking all these Old Testament stories like Exodus and Joel. Can you think of a different type of story where pain and suffering is not judgment, but pain and suffering is very different? Can you think of a story of a righteous sufferer? We read just a second ago from the book of Job, where Job was not a perfect man, but Job, Job was not guilty of some great thing that had led to his suffering. We're not going to do a deep dive into the book of Job, but he's the idea of the innocent sufferer, the righteous sufferer. He doesn't deserve what is happening. And yet, when you get to the end of the book of Job, what Job realizes is, he has this great line, he says, I had heard of you, but now I see you, right? When God speaks to him from the whirlwind. And what happened with Job, he did not deserve his suffering, and yet he tried to see what is God saying to me in my suffering, and his suffering was a wake-up call. His suffering was a wake-up call for him to truly know the Lord and truly understand the Lord, and his was a situation of, we have pain and suffering just being part of this fallen world. C.S. Lewis offers this quote that I've always gravitated towards where he says, and this is his book, The Problem of Pain, he says, pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our consciousness, but shouts in our pains. Pain is God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world. And so, to be really honest, we must discern if we are in a Joel situation or a Job situation. We must discern if we're in a Joel situation or a Job situation. And once again, you get to interpret your pain. Don't let anybody else do it. <laughs> but when things happen to me, okay, I'll go ahead and tell you what you've been wondering about. What happened to my hand? Okay, I was playing basketball the other day. And like it's happened to me a thousand times in my life, someone just gave me a normal chest pass and I put my hands up to catch it. It was six in the morning, I caught it awkwardly. I thought I had jammed my finger. Like a very unwise person, I played another hour and a half <laughs> thinking I had jammed my finger. And then I taped it up and my family and friends said, you, 
I think you broke your finger. And I was like, no, it's just a bad jam. And then I woke up the next morning. I was like, oh, yeah, I think I broke my finger. And uh, I went to the doctor, and they confirmed that. And then this week, not only that, they put pins in it. It seems very dramatic, right? <laughs> so I'm lying there the other day at a Vanderbilt clinic on the bed. I'm about to put, go under anesthesia. And I'm thinking, is this a Joel situation or a Job situation? Am I being judged? And I seriously, I searched my heart. And I felt like a righteous sufferer, I'll be honest. <laughs> and yet it was a wake-up call because Ash Wednesday's coming up. And what's the great refrain of Ash Wednesday? From dust we came, and to dust we will return. I'm not getting younger, friends. <laughs> And as I sat there, and other people were in there for far worse, and it made me stop and pause and think about what none of us like to think about, and that is mortality. It made me think about compassion. It made me think about the human condition, and all of that drove me back to the Lord Jesus. Now, there are other times that something like this happens, and I think, no, I think God is doing a judgment on me. A story I'm not 100% prepared to tell you, but I'd give you a quick summary. Some other types of greed and arrogance I got myself into the last four or five years where I just felt very stuck in my life and some opportunities I thought were going to happen just never seemed to happen. And once again, it's similar to when I was 22. I wasn't ready for it. And I think God was judging me. Once again, I don't want to get into all of that. I don't know you well enough. I'm teasing but there have been times in my life I felt like God was judging me. And I'll be very clear, not because God hates me, but because God loves me. And God was disciplining me in those situations. And so what happens, whether it's a Job situation or a Joel situation, we get to this point where we feel this call to repentance. And repentance is a change that leads to joy. Repentance is a change that leads to joy. It comes from this word metanoia in scripture, which is all about this idea of change. And good and healthy change that comes to repentance is good for us. Think about the chosen few that have continued on their New Year's resolution. Here we are, second week of February, and a few of you have kept up with it. You're like, I'm still exercising. I'm still eating right. And you have a smile on your face, mostly because everyone else quit mid-January but because it makes you feel good. The change you have made in your life makes you feel good. Think about this too. When Pharaoh finally repented and he let the children of Israel go, that brought about a lot of joy. Now, he reneged on that and then chased them right into the desert. But repentance brings joy. And when we make those changes... When we honor God by making those changes, it brings great joy. I really enjoyed seeing your family prayer because I'm, I'm learning as a father that the greatest thing I can do spiritually for my children is for them to hear me confess sin. And once again, incidentally, I learned this from my father who always, when he sinned against me, he would own it and he would say, I sinned against you, I repent and I'm sorry. And we have an amazing relationship to this day. Not perfect, but I noticed in him a willing to repent. And so I knew deep down he was authentic in the real deal. The greatest thing we do, it's, my kids joke me all the time with 
quote-unquote dad lectures that they claim I give them. I think it's a lot of wisdom. But um, <laughs> they talk about my dad lectures, but I'm learning more and more. It's not my dad lectures that shape them. It's my willingness to repent and to confess sin to them and for them to see that type of authentic life, for it leads to joy. Now, here's the thing. I'm going to read two more passages from Joel. Joel chapter 2, 12 through 13. Joel chapter 2, 12 through 13. Even now declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. And he relents from sending calamity. Whether it's the Joel story or the Revelation story or the Exodus story, when we repent, good things happen. God blesses us and God brings us joy. Sometimes that's because of sin in my life and I repent of that sin. Other people in my life are grateful and experience joy. Other times, it's like me this week with my finger thinking from dust I came to the dust I will return and having a reset, a wake-up call on what really matters in life and experiencing a type of intimacy and connection with the Lord that I had not known before. I heard a friend say this, and, and I've adopted it. And he says this about various pain and suffering in his life. He says, I do not know why God allowed that to happen to me. But I'm a different person now, and I like the person I am now better than the person I was then. I don't know why God allowed that. I don't know why God allowed that plague to come, and I honestly don't know if it was a Joel situation or a Job situation, but I'm a different person now, and I like the person I am now more than the person I used to be. I'm still upset with Kyle. Because <laughs> I wish he'd brought me in for Revelation 21 or 22, right? Because what do we have when he gets to the end? We remember that the plagues are not the end of the story. We remember that the judgments are not the end of the story. And we are told that there is a place coming, there is a new Jerusalem where every tear will be dry. And there will be no more mourning. And there will be no remembering because the curse will be no more. We see that in this Joel story. The last scripture I want to share with you from Joel, it's beautiful. Where the prophet says, speaking for the Lord, I will repay you for the years the locusts have eaten. Meaning, everything you lost with the locusts, you're going to get it back. We see that at the end of the Job story too, right? And we see this with the children of Israel when they get their own land in Canaan. Everything you lost, you're going to get it back. I will repay you for the years the locusts have eaten, the great locust and the young locust, the other locust and the locust swarm, my great army that I send among you. You will have plenty to eat until you are full, and you will praise the name of the Lord your God who has worked wonders for you. And never again will my people be shamed. A few years ago, I was talking to one of my best friends in the world who went through a really dark time. Some of it was not his fault. He would tell you some of it was his fault some pain and suffering that happened in his life, some addiction that happened in his life. He hit totally rock bottom. And this was five or six years after he'd hit rock bottom. And we were hanging out one day, and I looked him in the eye and I said, hey, I want you to be honest. How are you doing? 
And he looked at me and he said, there's only one way I can answer that. The Lord has restored the years the locusts have eaten. And that's the beautiful part. That's the beautiful part of Revelation. It sounds dark that there's a plague, but guess what? You get a second chance. You get a second chance to have what God has always wanted for you. I was talking to my friend Saul the other day, who's halfway through a 25-year sentence. And he said to me on the phone what he always says in his letters, and that is this. JP, someday I'm going to be out of prison and we're going to get coffee at Dunkin' Donuts again. And I said, Saul, I look forward to that day and I'm going to order a large. <laughs> no matter what has happened to us, no matter what pain and suffering we have, do you know that God loves you? Do you know that God cares for you? Do you know that God is restoring a place where everything will be as it was always intended to be. Let us pray together. God, we love you. And we express our love and our submission by giving up the right to have to understand everything that happens. And instead, but say, you are God, you are king, what are you teaching us? What are you showing us? What do you want from us in our lives? Lord, help us to cling to this promise that you have our best interests at heart and that you will remake all things, you will restore all things, and we will live forever with you in the new heavens and the new earth. Come, Lord Jesus.